you would turn in your Bibles to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the last of the Old Testament books. You are not sure where to find Zechariah. The best place to start is in Matthew and to go to the left past Malachi and then you will find Zechariah. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 12 this evening in our series on Christ in the Old Testament. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Zechariah chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength to the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem." And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shiamites by themselves and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray 
for his blessing upon you. Lord, we pray this evening that you would open up your word to us. That in your word we might see the glory of our Savior. We might see all that he has done for us. The hope that he gives us. The blessings he has prepared for us. And that as we study your word, we would give glory to you, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We come now to the end of the book of Zechariah. If you have been following our evening series in Shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, you will note that this is the penultimate sermon. That is the second to the last. We have one more text to open up next week in the book of Malachi. But what we have been doing is going through various sections of the Old Testament showing that the Lord Jesus Christ is present throughout all of the Bible. And that we can learn more about the, old, about the Lord Jesus Christ, not just from the accounts in the Gospels, but also from the prophecies and the history and the poetry of the Old Testament. And one of the things that I think is important for us to remember as we look into the Old Testament for the Lord Jesus Christ is that pictures of Christ in the Old Testament draw a direct connection between the God of the Bible and Jesus. And that's crucially important. It's not just that we see prophecies of Jesus before his birth. We are meant to see that the creator, sustainer, and Lord of the universe is Jesus Christ. That he is nothing less than the Lord our God. And so as we see, for example, this evening, Zechariah describing God and the blessings that he brings to his people, we are meant to see Jesus. And that connection is made explicit in verse 10. As God himself is described as the one who is pierced. And so as we look at this text, I don't want you to focus just on that one verse and to see that Jesus is mentioned in an Old Testament prophet. That's certainly true. But I want you to see how Zechariah describes God. And then I want you to remember that that is your God. That is your Savior. That is your Jesus. Well, let's start then by seeing how Zechariah describes the Lord God at the beginning of this chapter. He describes God as the strength of his people. That is, that God is the one who sustains his people. And this should be a comfort to us. Who is this God that is before us? Well, as we see in verse 1, he is the one who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. The prophet begins here with a reminder that God is the one who founded the earth, who founded the universe. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and think about how massive the universe is. You could think about the billions and billions of stars. You could think about the thousands or millions of years that light takes to come from one place to another of the universe. We think about the vastness of our world, which is a spot 
in our galaxy, which is but a twinkle in all of the universe. And God has created it all. But don't just think about how big the universe is. Think about how complex it is. Think about the complexities that are involved in your own body. What the Lord has done fashioning your hands and your eyes and your ears and your heart and your veins and your lungs. Every part of you down to the smallest level is incredibly complex, incredibly detailed, incredibly thought out. And this is especially important in our day and age because it is filled with fools who say there is no God. And imagine that all of this happened by chance. No. The prophet says, God is the one who has done this. But God is not only the one who is the creator of all that is around us, He is our sustainer as well. This is no watchmaker God. God doesn't wind up the world and let it go. No, He is active and involved. And we even see this in verse 1. All of the verbs in this verse are present participles. That is, they indicate an ongoing action. It's not just that the Lord stretched out the heavens in the past. He holds them in place. It's not just that He founded the earth. He has established it and sustains it. This is who our God is. Our God is before all things. And this, of course is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul saw this very clearly in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. He says that Jesus is before all things, and in Him all things are held together. It's as if Paul had read Zechariah 12, 1. God is the creator and the sustainer, and He is the one who gives life. You must know that we are not random. Your existence is purposed. It is designed by God. He is the one who formed the spirit of man. God knows you personally. He knows your frame. He knows everything about you. And I think perhaps most importantly of all, this is the God who speaks. This is the oracle of the word of the Lord we know this because God speaks. God doesn't sit in the heavens apart from us. He's not distanced from us. He's not a, a withdrawn deity as some others would profess. No, He is the God who speaks to His people, who gives them His word. God wants you to know that He is active, that He is sovereign. And this should bring about a sense of urgency in us. We should be ready to stop. And listen, Zechariah goes on to speak of this God as the protector that we need. Look at verse 2. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. God confounds our enemies. Now, God gives us the protection we need he will deal with our enemies. But what I want you to notice is, he says, the siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. God is not saying that your life will be easy. He's actually saying the opposite. I don't think any of us would desire to live in the time of a siege. It's a time of hardship. It's a time 
of difficulty. But God says, in the midst of the difficulty, I am there and I will confound your enemies. I will strike them. I will thrust them asunder. I will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering. That's a metaphor that tells us that the enemies of Jerusalem will wander away out of their minds, drunk, unable to even think, let alone attack. God causes them to be blinded by their own evil. They think that they're going to win, but they will not triumph. They're defeated by their own wickedness. What an encouragement that is to us in our day and age. Because our enemies, the enemies of the church, are constantly predicting the destruction of the church. You know, it's said that Voltaire surmised that he would make the Bible obsolete and destroy the church. And his home is now a place where Bibles are printed and distributed. You see, the enemy of God is not as wise as he thinks. In verse 3, Zechariah says that God will make Jerusalem a heavy stone, a rock for all the peoples. What that means is it doesn't matter how many are against Jerusalem. They cannot succeed. Even an attempt to destroy them will cause their own hurt. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. You know, this is a picture, perhaps you've had this happen to you around your house. You have a large rock or a boulder that needs to be moved so that you can plant flowers or grass or do something. And you think, well, I'll just take that rock and I'll move it from there to there. And then you make that mistake of bending over and trying to pick it up. And then the rock stays there and you're on the couch with a heating pad on your back. Because it's too much for you. You see, that's the picture God wants you to see. That your enemies will not be able to move you because God is sovereign. So this is the God that we see. But we might also ask, where is God taking us? Zechariah picks this up in verse 6. He says, on that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of the wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. You see, God wants you to know that as his people, you are not on the defensive. We often think about the church as having to defend itself against the attacks of the enemy. We wonder how deep should we dig the moat? How high should our walls be so that we can retreat and be safe from the enemy? But you see, Zechariah here says the exact opposite. He says, no, the church is God's instrument. We are his ambassadors. His kingdom is moving forward. We are on the attack. The purpose of God will spread. You know what happens when you take a blazing pot and put it in the midst of wood? Or flame amongst grain? It sets everything on fire. It destroys everything before it. It takes over. That's the way we should view the kingdom of God. That there's no stopping it. How could something as simple and frivolous as social media or Hollywood or governments stop the church and God? It's foolish to think so. God wants to take us to a place of importance. Look at verse 7. 
And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. Do you see what Zechariah is saying here? There are no divisions in the people of God. God is bringing great unity and peace. He's bringing the church together. The small and the great are brought together in the salvation that God brings. And he begins with the humble areas, the unfortified areas, the less known. Why does he do that? Because that's the way that God gets the glory. That is the way that he works in our day as well. God takes his people to a place of strength in verse 8. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God. Imagine that. The feeblest of the people of God are like the greatest warrior king of Israel. And the house of David, like the angels, like God himself. He will empower us. God knows we are weak, but with God's strength, we are strong. You have to understand that there are no extras in the kingdom of God. You know what an extra is, don't you? When there's a film being made and they, they cast for extras, you've got the stars of the movie and they're acting, but there's all the people walking in the background or sitting and talking or doing something. That it's almost like visual noise, people moving and doing things. And, and if an extra doesn't show up one day for work, they don't stop production of the movie. They just grab anyone else because the extra is not important. But in the kingdom of God, Everyone is important. You are important. God is taking you to a place of strength. Well, this is what you are to see as a picture of God. And then the Lord begins to describe God in a way that shows us our Savior. It's made explicit in the New Testament, but we can just hear the words and understand that what is being spoken of here is the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God Himself. And it's not surprising that that's what's going on here because the very first thing we see is God's initiating grace. In verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Just when we think it's up to us to get the job done, that we need to pass the laws, that we need to do the work, that we need to move the kingdom ahead, God says, I will pour out my grace. He reminds us that he is the one in charge, that he is the one who has the power. You see, we often act as if it begins with us. I think perhaps one of the most concerning areas in which I see this is when you ask a Christian for his or her testimony. And there are too many testimonies that are filled with the letter I. I did. I saw. I read. 
I went, I believed, I, 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 I. Now part of this is that's our experience. We're describing what's happening. That we need God and we cry out. And we think we are the initiators and then God responds. But God here is declaring that his work is primary. He is the initiator. God reverses our thinking. I will pour out, he says, my grace. He is in control. He sends his spirit to bring grace. Doesn't that sound like the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Which of us said, send the Son, Lord. Send the Savior, Lord. We'll help him to figure everything out and what he needs and so we can get what we need. No, God looked down and saw that his people were dead in their trespasses and sins. And that their only hope was in sovereign grace. Was in a Savior who would come and redeem a people, not just from their sin and shame, but from themselves. Jesus redeems us, not just from our wickedness. Jesus redeems us from our so-called good works. From thinking that we are worthy. It is an outpouring of grace. But this outpouring is also an inward work. It brings an inward awareness of our need. A spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. You see, there are no methods that we can use to bring about the kingdom of God. There are no methods that we can use to change others. This is, I think, to the great consternation of many of us. There are parents that wish they could do something more to bring their children to the Lord. And there are some who live lives of regret, thinking it is their fault that they've done something wrong. They haven't prayed often enough. They haven't read enough. They haven't exhorted hard enough. And that somehow it's their fault. But do you see here that God is the one who's in charge. He brings the grace. And that brings the inward working to us. That means that our hope and our method is God. We must focus on Him. We must look to Him. Now, this is where Zechariah grabs our attention. This is where the shadow is lifted. He says, so when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. What are we to see here? We're to see the one we have pierced. But who is speaking? Is this the creator and sustainer of the universe? Is this the one who obliterates the enemies of the people of God? Is this the sovereign king of all things? How could he be pierced and be pierced by us? You see, God is giving us a vision of his grace that is manifested in Christ. And this is crucial because grace is not an abstract substance. 
Grace is not something amorphous. Grace is the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. And so when grace showers upon us, we are to see the one whom we have pierced. It is the one that we have pierced. And it's interesting because the Jews have a great difficulty with this text. They don't know what to make of it. Who is the one whom they have pierced? And Jewish translations will go so far as to change the pronouns. They won't say, on me, on him whom they have pierced. They will say, on the one who was pierced. Because they, they don't have a place for a suffering servant. They don't have a place for a God who redeems his people through his blood. But you and I, on this side of the rent veil, we see this magnificent and glorious God. And we see Jesus. That's how we see God. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's what our Lord says in John 14. And so we have to remember that Jesus is the grace of God. And so here we obviously have a prophecy of the cross. But you don't need to take my word for it. Listen to John in John chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And John 19, 37. When our Lord Jesus Christ was thrust through with the spear, John tells us that that was done so that another scripture would be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. John draws us right back to Zechariah. We are to see it. And our focus in this, the reason John gives us this reference, the reason Zechariah gives us this prophecy, is that we are to see that we are responsible. We have pierced the Son. The death of Jesus Christ is not just a fact, it is our doing. And in that we see the love of Christ. You know, for many of us, we would have no difficulty loving, serving, helping our family. The best of our friends, those who are dear to us. But would we serve our enemies? Would we exalt them? Would we bless them? You see, that's what Jesus does. He fulfills this prophecy. It's described at Pentecost. Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 2 says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. But their reaction is, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, what shall we do? This is the vision of the Lord that you should have. Not that you should wallow in guilt and shame in your sin, but as you... <coughs> As you realize your sin, as you repent of your sin, you look to the Savior 
You don't need to say how lost and black I am. You say how great my Savior is. And you may as well get in practice for it. Because when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, John describes it this way. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. When Jesus returns, every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And so as we see the Lord Jesus Christ, as we see the grace of God in him, as we see the one who was pierced, we're changed. It's not just seeing Jesus. It's being changed by Jesus. It's having godly sorrow and repentance. You see how Zechariah gives us the picture of the intensity of this sorrow. He says, it is sorrow-like as one weeps over a firstborn. Stop and think about that for a moment. Is there anything more heart-rending than the death of a child? Yes, the death of a firstborn child in Zechariah's day. It is the saddest thing we could experience. And should we miss it, he says, it's as great as the mourning for Hadad Ryman on the plain of Medigo. It's the worst defeat that Israel has ever suffered. The worst thing you could ever think of. This is the sorrow we have. But do you also see how individual it is? It's not, again, amorphous. It's to each of us. The family of the house of David by itself will mourn. Their wives by themselves will mourn. The house of Nathan by itself and their wives. The house of Levi, the house of the Shimeites. You see, what Zechariah is saying here is, this is an individual capturing of hearts. This is not a group project. This is hearts being changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be shaped by this vision, shaped by the cross. We see the worth of Jesus. We see the suffering that he's endured. And in that, we see the horror of our sin. Not just the consequences, but what our sin really is. But do not be blind. See the hope for redemption. And above all, see the heart of God. Your God loves you so much that he sent his only son to live a perfect life and to die the death that you deserved, that you might be the recipient of his grace, that it might shower upon you, that you might look at the one who was your enemy, the one whom you pierced, the one whom you put on the cross and say, my Lord and my God. That is your Jesus. Let's pray.